Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever this episode finds you. This is Doth Protest Too Much, a Protestant historical theology podcast. As you can tell, I am not Drew Christensen, the host of the episode or the host of the podcast. This is James Rickenbaker. I'm here with Stephen Burnett, who he and I are co-hosts on the podcast. Drew is not able to join us today, for which we're sorry, but we're going to go on without him and have a lot of fun because we have a great uh, a great guest on today, Justin Holcomb, the Reverend Canon Dr. Justin Holcomb. We have to get that right because that's incredibly important. Justin is a priest, professor, and author. He has written or edited 20 books on abuse, theology, and biblical studies. Justin is an Episcopal priest and has served as the canon for vocations in the Diocese of Central Florida since 2013. He teaches theology and apologetics at Reformed Theological Seminary and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Justin has previously taught at the University of Virginia, Emory University, and Agnes Scott College, and has served as a visiting professor at Neshota House Theological Seminary and Westminster Seminary. Justin also serves on the boards of Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments, Heart Support, and Leaders Collective, and he and Leslie, his wife, helped co-found Rest in 2009. He is a co-host for the White Horse End podcast and a guest co-host for the As in Heaven podcast. The Reverend Canon Dr. Justin Holcomb, or as we like to call you, Justin, welcome to the podcast. That'll work. Hey, thanks for having me. My wife's name is Lindsay, just um, just, just so you know. Not Leslie. But, Did I say Leslie? Oh my goodness. It begins with an L and I answer to anything that begins with a J. So, I mean, it, it's, yeah. it's all good. <laughs> but well, it's good to be here, guys. That. Yeah. Glad to have you with us. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. I love uh, love being able to talk about the stuff we're going to talk about and how important it is for ourselves and for um, the church and, and what it means pastorally. Precisely. And what Justin is talking about is the subject for our episode today, which is heresy. Heresy is often a four-letter word in the life of the church because that word can be used to mean more than one thing. So to get us started off, Justin, could you tell us why it is important that we talk about and learn about heresy? And perhaps preliminarily, can you give us some boundaries for what we're talking about when we talk about heresy? Yeah, um, and I'll I'll lunge toward an answer if I uh, leave something out. Uh, just come on back on it. So let's let's look at like what we mean by the word heresy. So the word heresy means choice, decision. It's to dig in your heels against orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is the um, a summary of biblical teaching has been passed down throughout their tradition. And it has been refined and defined through various councils and the structures of authority and trying to summarize what the revealed word of God has said about God, salvation, us, um, and, and the main teachings. So orthodoxy, uh, you could say it's uh, summarized in the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, uh, what, what's also known as the rule of faith. There's a um, We know that there was a uh, agreed upon uh, teaching that was summarized and passed down that was floating around even during the time of the New Testament that was summarizing the main things about the character and nature of God, who is Jesus, you know, doctrine of God, who is Jesus? Is he, uh, is he a man who talks about God, uh, but not really divine? Is he divine, but not really human? 
And then if he's God and man, how does that work out? And what in the world did he do um, about salvation? I mean, so it hits all of the bullseyes, all the main points. So um, the something about heresy that's important is that not everything that's a wrong teaching is heresy. That's an important thing to say. Um, you know, we we could all three of us could disagree on something very important, but secondary. I have you know uh, end times and baptism are are two examples where there's a lot of variety. Uh, I I would never uh, expect to be told that I'm a heretic because of my my view of baptism or sacraments, and I would never use that word. So what? And you said it early on. It's it's like a four letter word. Uh, it's the H bomb. I mean. People misuse it, and I get why they misuse it. It's kind of fun to go, oh, that, that's a heresy. But when you're saying it flippantly in a conversation with friends, that's different than blogging about it and being a heresy hunter where every single teaching that you disagree with has one category, and that's heresy. Uh, there's wrong teaching, there's unhelpful teaching, there's even dangerous teaching, and heresy is the worst of the worst. It's it's lying about God, what God has revealed in scriptures and in Jesus Christ, and it's telling a lie. And heretics, heretics were really conservative and traditional for the most part in the tradition. They were actually trying to um, do away with any type of mystery. They were actually uh, reading the text and being like pretty pretty wooden literal like well you know I mean, we can get into that later on but like you know it jesus is clearly a man so he's not god and so he's you know he he's human but not divine and they had bible verses for it and so um it's not like the heretics were you know squishy and anti-theological they were actually trying to be careful and so it wasn't the questions they asked it was the answers they dug in their heels and said no to the agreed upon teaching of the church in summarizing the Bible and what the Bible was revealing. And we, you know, once, once we get to some specifics, that'll help, you know, help flesh that out. But it's important because the heretics were a gift to the church in one regard, while people did follow them and they did lead people astray. That's, that's tragic and horrific. But because of them, we have, you know, the, the Chalcedonian definition, you know, we have, we have the Nicene Creed. We we have so many of these confessions and creeds that are gifts, and so we have we have a Nicene Creed because you had Arius, and we have you know the one. I mean, Athanasius is just doing wonderful work and and uh, talking about the person and work of Christ, and so um, that's why it's important to have this conversation. I, I think I said like five different possible tracks we can go on, but did I did I answer the main? Yeah part of the question okay that's exactly that that's exactly what we're looking for um i should say justin is also the author of the book on heresy know the heretics um in his no series that he is an editor of um there are four books in that series now if memory serves there are four books and a fifth one coming um yeah so justin has written extensively on um on the heretics of ages past and like the great Fitzsimmons Allison Episcopal Bishop of the Diocese of South Carolina from uh, several bishops ago he wrote a book called The Cruelty of Heresy 
And Justin, I think, did a great job. Uh, I, I should say I just finished um, Know the Heretics. Justin, you did a great job Thank of you. talking about the importance of realizing that the heresies of old are not dead, but really have implications for today, much in the same way that uh, Bishop Allison did. And so uh, it's important for us to, to keep that in mind when I ask you this question. So why is it important to assess the heresies with a sympathetic light, which of course doesn't mean agreement, but understanding why they logically worked out their understandings as they did? Ooh. Why is it important to, to address this sympathetically? I, uh, I've done lots of interviews on heresies. I mean, I, the books came out about five years ago. The, the, com the companion book, the two books that came out together were Know the Heretics and Know the Creeds and Councils because they're really two sides of the same coin. Of uh, we, have, we have the creeds because we have heresies and the heresies were kicking against the truth of the creeds. Um, and the reason that I love that because I've, I've done so many interviews on this and that's a question I've never had to think about, but I was trying to um, trying to communicate that. One reason is because for the most part, the heretics were trying to be faithful to what they thought was their use of reason with regard to scripture and tradition. Mm. They weren't trying, they weren't intentionally trying to gut the heartbeat of the Christian faith. Uh, some of these people were bishops who were uh, pastors and theologians. They they weren't outside of the church lobbing bombs. They were actually trying to take, I mean, what when you do theology, we have the scriptures, which are the magisterial authority. That's the language that we would use. It's the ultimate final authority for faith and practice. But then we have categories of ministerial authority. This is, you know, Calvin talked about how the we reverence and think as holy the, the, the creeds, and he starts listing different creeds. Those are authoritative, just under scripture, but above me. Right. <laughs> and, and, and then we have reason. So we have tradition and then we have reason. And so what's happening is we're watching the heretics try to think reasonably about what they've seen revealed in scripture and what it means and what's true and accurate. They're trying to say true things about God. Right. That's easy to respect. It's easy to respect their intent. Mm -hmm. And because we're, we, we're, if, if God is so wonderful and gracious and loving to us, we would want to know as much as possible about him and his intent and how God does, how God interacts with the world, how God is in God's self and how does God interact with us and relate to us and reconcile with us? You second know, Corinthians five. And so they're trying to say true things because they think truth matters. And that's why I think sympathetically and also to see. Um, so it's, it's looking at their intent. The other thing is they're, they're trying to think truthfully about God. Um, but it also, it, it encourages our own humility toward things we say. I'm not saying that, you know, usually we're given two options. Like, how do you hold things? And so, well, you can he hold it, you know, uh, open-handed as if like, it's, you, you don't really care. It might roll off your hand. And if it rolls off your hand, you, I'm, it's open-handed. Or the other option is closed fisted. Like you're trying to, you know, clinch it and crush it. You might punch someone with your closed fist. Right. Well, there's somewhere in between um, being like a heresy hunter who's trying to find someone to fight with and someone who has no theological commitments or backbone and holds everything open-handed 
there's there's something where you kind of cup something with your hand, something that's important. You don't want to crush it. You don't want to drop it. And it's precious. But you it, but you're also holding it with humility. Like, this is important. I don't want to crush it. I want to honor it. And so there's a humility that I think is reflected by, as you said, assessing the heretic sympathetically. Um, it's a humility that we need from each other, but a humility that we should have for ourselves, calling ourselves a humility of like, I wonder if there, I mean, there are, there are places that each one of us are wrong mm-hmm. about theology. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And we don't even know which ones they are because right. everything right. I believe. Yeah, exactly. Now the cool part is, is that we have, we have, we have a big circle that says, okay, if you're Christian, this is what Christians believe. Nicene Creed, Apostles Creed, Chalcedonian definition, you know, those are a good place to start. Right. If you're outside of that, um, you it's up to God to decide if you're a Christian or not. But if you say, I don't believe Jesus is God, that's not an option to then be a Christian. Like there's, right. you have to be inside that circle of those, those creeds. Right. Uh, but inside that circle, there's places where theologically we would say things about God or the sacraments or the person and work of Jesus. That's not accurate and precise and right. wrong. And so that, that, that it's a call to humility at the same time, at the same time, um i'm not trying to fudge the line on heresy at all i mean i literally go through and list and name heretics and i believe there are heresies and i believe there's heresies alive and well today right that are uh you know as one of my seminary professors has said they're alive from the pit of hell and they smell like smoke so let's be honest about <laughs> those because they, they bring death to people right so you, you can say that strongly but still say that with humility with regard to assessing them with sympathy yeah what do you guys think about that no, uh, so that's, first of all, this is a fascinating conversation because to be honest, like I've always been very annoyed by the heresy hunter types that I've seen. And someone posted on Facebook a question. I think it was, um, oh, is is Tim Keller a heretic? I started reading his books and then someone, I saw a video said he's a heretic, right? right. And I, I just commented that if you search for any Christian leader throughout all of time, there will be a bunch of explainers about how they are actually heretics and evil and false prophets and stuff like that. Right. Um, so but my, my, I guess my question to this is, um, we've become so obsessed with uh, heretic speak that it's almost like there's only two categories like a good godly orthodox christian or you're a heretic and so when you tell, tell people hey so and so's not a heretic they're not a heretic then they think that you're saying they're great they're like everyone else they're right here in the camp with us so do we need a, a better vocabulary around around these stages so we can watch ourselves and watch people around us absolutely we need different vocabulary um there uh, there, there's an article that you all can post to that I wrote for Christianity Today, which some people think they're heretical. Um, and it was in 2016, October 2016. It was the lead article. It was, I was I love the fact that they made a thing about heresy, the lead article. Why you shouldn't call that false teaching a heresy. Uh-huh. That's the title of it. Why you shouldn't call that false teaching a heresy, October 2016. And it, it went through and I started out saying, you know, there's a group of bloggers uh, in the Southern Baptist circles that decried Rick Warren for being a heretic because he talked about communication from God via dreams. It's like, mm. okay, if, if he, they're, they're, you can make yourself a heretic, but saying that God communicates by dreams um, is not heresy. Um, and, and there's been, you know, Christian Zionism. There's a group of UK uh, Christian leaders 
um, who devoted much of their teaching to criticizing Christian Zionism. I mean, there's wrong teachings and false teachings that are not heresies because to be a heresy means to be a damnable statement about God. Like it is, it is, um, it's not just wrong, but it's wrong about an essential teaching of the Christian faith. And those essential teachings have been defined. And what's been interesting is, this is why I like doing historical theology, is that in both the Roman Catholic tradition and in the Reformational tradition, you actually have a sliding scale of uh, different categories. So um, you within you have you have a teaching that is approaching heresy in Roman Catholicism. You have a doctrine that is a, a heresy of the first degree. Is that that's a doozy? Um, so <laughs> heresy of the first degree, like saying Jesus Christ is not God. That's right. a heresy of the first degree. Um, a doctrine that has been explicitly defined by one of the church's articles of faith, but diverges from the received majority is considered an opinion approaching heresy. So it's different. So heresy of the first degree, an opinion approaching heresy. And then the last category is just wrong, but not approaching heresy. Right. <laughs> I mean, so just there, you, you already see in the Roman Catholic tradition, you have the sliding scale of intensity. Same thing in the Reformation tradition. You have errors directly against the fundamental articles of faith. Second, errors around a fundamental or indirect contradiction. And then you have errors beyond a fundamental article. So, so we would, you know, uh, you know, Reformational Protestant, you know, Protestant folks would look at the Roman Catholic teaching on Mary. Some of the things they say about Mary, and we would say, that doesn't sound right. But you can't say, I mean, there might be some things I'm saying, like, um, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Like, no. Um, we, we look at James and Jude. That's a problem. We also have a different doctrine of sex not being inherently dirty. Um, right. There's other reasons. But, um, uh, we have a category for that sliding scale of what how we would categorize that. And so the way I thought about it, and I got this from one of my teachers, is uh, he seminary professors, he made a, a cone and it had like a, an upside down, like think of an ice cream cone, but he did it with paper. And he said, at the very top are the essentials of the Christian faith. At the very bottom are things you believe but are not essential, like uh, mode of baptism. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. baptism is very important, but, you know, immersing, sprinkling, um, you know, pouring, um, those are important, but it's not, is Jesus Christ God? Um, and, he, and so what ends up happening is you can go in one of two directions. I He said, let the cone be the cone. Let that be your cone of priority. There's things at the top that are really important. There's not a lot of them. And there's things in the middle and it gets larger toward the bottom. Now there's two extremes. If you don't, if you, Stephen, if you don't, if you don't have the cone, you either crush that cone up and everything is on the highest level of intensity and everything's a heresy. We address that or you crush the cone down and everything is just really an opinion. And well, you know what? I see why you would think Jesus being God's important, but that doesn't really feel meaningful to me. Right. Well, everything's just an opinion all of a sudden. So I think that sliding scale, it goes back to the original question um, about uh, assessing them with sympathy because there's humility built into that. That So your question, Stephen, actually kind of rounds out the humility we were just talking about before. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and um, 
so to get a little bit more in depth into the book in case our listenership uh, doesn't have the opportunity to to read it although uh, not to prop myself up uh, but I have an infinite home and I read it in four days it's really good and it reads quickly so it, it was I wrote that for Sunday school like I wanted high school students to be able to pick this up and read it and be like I understand what's being said I want um I, I wanted you know my parents who go to Sunday school to be able to go to a Sunday school class and be like yeah I know what's being said here and that the editor the editor was like hey Justin uh define Christology and I was like come on like isn't that one obvious and he's like don't take anything for granted yeah Define. And I was like, great. And I love that the editors did that. So um, it's, it is meant to be readable. Sorry, go ahead. Perfect. No, no, that's good. That's good. So you mentioned, and we've mentioned in every episode that we, uh, this podcast is reformationally minded. Um, we, we come from, you know, I come from an Episcopal background. Drew comes from an Episcopal background. Stephen comes from a, a Pentecostal background and, and, and other elements that play even evangelical background. And so, um, some of the language, especially that that uh, Drew and Charlie, uh, who's also a, a Lutheran pastor, um, some of the language that Drew, Charlie, and I talk about is the language of law and gospel, which is very reformationally minded. In the chapter on Marcionism, right, you yeah. talk about the fact that Marcion sharply divided between law and gospel and how that was one of the charges that was leveled against him, and such division contributed to his heresy. Seeing as we frequently talk about law and gospel and the importance of dividing law and gospel in the reformational way of thinking, especially the Lutheran school, could you explain the difference between the heresy that uh, Marcion was accused of and the the proper distinction between law and gospel in effect? Yeah. Um, and this is uh, not that it matters, but when I go through and say, what are some of the most important heresies that stand out to discuss marcionism is always the first one and uh and if you get the other ones i'll you know i'll let you know i'm kidding uh, <laughs> but, but because it because of this issue because marcion taught that the god of the old testament was legalistic and wrathful in a fundamentally different being from the gracious and loving god of the new testament right and so it was assumed that, and, and he was anti-Semitic. He didn't like all of the Jewishness of the Old Testament. He took out some of the Jewishness of the new, the the, the new of Jesus. Just kind of, uh, it was, um, and and he rejected the authority of the Old Testament and attempted to liberate the church from all law because right. he saw that as just raffle. First of all, that's hilarious because if you actually look at just the words and the frequency used in the old testament what's highlighted is god's patience and mercy everlasting hesed his his right. covenantal love like the emphasis of the old testament is not the wrath of god now right. of course the wrath of god is there the emphasis of the new testament and the ministry of jesus is not love and a, a sweet gentle hug but the holiness of God and the wrath to come and repenting. So right. it, on, and the way this is done today, I don't like the God of the old Testament. I like the God of the new Testament. I'm like, you don't even know what you're saying because right. if you read, I mean, the new Testament is all of this blood for sacrifice and there's wrath and then there's for, you know, repentance. So, so what's happening 
is he's trying to free the entire church. And he was doing this around 140 AD, 144, very early, one of the first. Um, you know, I, I referred to the Judaizers as heretics, and they were heretics in Bible time. Marcion was, you know, the very first one. So he ended up creating his own Bible, which people functionally do today also by their devotional reading, which right. is they don't even read the Old Testament, which included only, he only included a shorter version of the gospel of luke and 10 epistles of paul i mean that right. so he really he he basically did what thomas jefferson did before jefferson got his scissors to the bible right <laughs> and, and then he he also edited those books so he cut out all old testament citations from paul's letters oh which, man yeah he was he was a his real 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 piece of work and so the early church concluded that marcion's division uh, between law and gospel, which is what you asked, all right. the New Testament is how they thought through that, were foreign to the apostles' teaching. They saw the apostles' teaching as reflecting the law and gospel. So second century theologians and Bishop Irenaeus mm -hmm. spoke forcefully against Marcion, and he wrote that Marcion, quote, mutilated the gospel according to Luke, removing all narratives of the Lord's birth and also removing much of the teaching of the discourses of the Lord, wherein he is the most manifestly described as acknowledging the maker of this universe to be his father. And so getting to the law and gospel now, if we think um, the, if the, the proper distinction is that the law of God is, the, is a reflection of the character and nature of God. God is holy mm -hmm. because God is holy. There is wrath because right. God is the, the wrath is because not because of God. God is not, it's not proper to God to be wrathful. Mm. It's proper to God to be holy mm. because there's sin. His holiness engages sin as wrath. Right. It is proper to God to be loving. That is proper to God and right. he is loving. And so the, the law and gospel is really helpful because um, if God is holy, then there is law and we need to deal with law. And that's the problem is that, it's the it's the reflection and revelation of the character and nature of God's holiness that's our problem, and thanks be to God, He takes care of our problem, which with His 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 loving kindness and His love and His patience, where He says, as you know, it may have been, I don't remember who said it, but it was um, the the righteousness. God requires is the righteousness his righteousness requires him to require I mean something like that <laughs> um, yeah and, and we're saved by God from God we're saved by God's wrath because God so loved us that he dealt with his holiness towards us with his good news by making a sacrifice and so um all of the no so we we break the law so all of the no that we deserve by breaking the covenantal law and the curses that come with it, his law, his holiness was dealt with. His holiness was poured out on Christ. That's why first, that's why first John one nine says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. Why in the world do we say that God is just to forgive us that's not justice that's the opposite of justice but if his holiness was poured out on someone else if his justice was poured out on christ if the bullet of holiness if he if jesus jumped in front of us to absorb the bullet of god's holiness 
then the cross and the resurrection is a smoking gun of our gratitude of like, what happened? What just happened? A bullet was shot that was aimed at me, but he took the bullet so I could live. Right. That's because of that's because of the 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 covenant of redemption that that there were before everything else took place the father planned redemption the son decided i'm going to accomplish redemption and the holy spirit said i will apply redemption so if we if we pull a marcion then we miss out on all of the good news that we just talked about about the proper distinction between the law and the gospel right so I, that's why it's so important what i mean I, I there's there's so many threads of this what are other dimensions that you guys might want to to look at and, and highlight well, first of all, thank you for saying that because I think I think that this is really important um, because Marcionism is perhaps one of the most um, one of the most common heresies today. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot tell you how many times I've been on social media of some sort of variety or heard some big name pastor um, whose last name happens to be Stanley. Um, who said that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament or that mm-hmm. I'm not an Old Testament kind of guy or something like that. Um, and so we need to we need to be clear on the fact that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of creation is the God of both Testaments. Mm-hmm. His character is consonant, consonant between old and new. And um, I think you I think you've brought that out beautifully. Um, and, uh, and, you know, my, my Lutheran, um, mind would be, uh, would be remiss if it didn't say the law kills and the law shows us that we are, we are dead in our sins. Uh, what does the colic say? We are unable of ourselves to help ourselves. And therefore we need one who can help us. And that is of course, Christ Jesus. Thanks be to and, God for and, that. And that's Paul. Paul said, I mean, you have the Psalms. And Paul and others say, hey, the law is beautiful, true, good, and holy because it's a, re- it's a reflection of the character of God. And Paul says the law kills. That I love that because that's one of the points of the law. The law reflects the problem. The law tells me, hey, Justin, need a haircut and need to shave. If I were to rub my face on the mirror, that would be ridiculous. I don't use the law to... Uh, solve what it reflects the the law diagnosis it's not the cure the gospel the good news and the personal work of jesus christ are the cure for the problem i have with the law which is an extension of god's character unhitching ourselves from the old testament leaves us out floating being tossed to and fro with it, it actually undoes the entire good news of what makes the good news good right absolutely I feel like an expression of that now it has to do a lot with our modern sensibilities, uh, having a lot of distaste for some of the things that are depicted in the Old Testament, right? I, I mean, I think the most ridiculous example of that is I've, I've heard people refer to Christ's uh, sacrifice. Uh, if you look at it as a substitutionary atonement, uh, that that is child abuse. It is God abusing his child, you know, which right. just like, makes me insane because right. anyway, yeah. So th- that to me is, that, that to me is nuts. Um, I wanted to come back to something you said earlier. You were talking Can I go about back to it real quick. I just want to come yeah. back to that statement because this is a. I mean, Jesus says, "I lay down my life," and yeah. and, and he says, "No one takes it from me. Yeah. I lay it down. I lay it down." He repeats it as a John. Right. John I lay it down. I lay it down. Right. I I will take it back up. And mm-hmm. he he is not a he's not 
a victim of abuse. He is a victim of um, death. And it, he was a victim of murder. I mean, the way Acts talks about he was murdered, but yeah. um, but it was also the plan of God at the same right. time. But go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. I was going to say, uh, and this kind of goes to what my next question is, which is you mentioned uh, motivation, you know, and, and being sympathetic uh, to, to heretics and things like that in the way they came yeah, to their sympathetic to, to, to the people in their search for yeah. truth. To the people in the search for truth, even if they're misguided. That's great. Um, Just sympathetic to heretics. <laughs> As such. Sympathetic yes. assessment to the intent of the heretics. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so my, my my question is that there seems to be uh, you know, basically two two camps that approach these um, the murky areas of our theology, the, the holes in our knowledge and the mysteries of God. And in the one camp, you have people that seem to be genuinely trying to find the truth in these murky areas or in these gray areas where we don't have clear teaching or clear doctrine. Um, and they're willing to believe to, to receive uh, truth that or come to understand truth that they don't like. And there are others that take a gray area as a license because it's not a heresy to say X and I want to say X. The next is my opinion. And to me, motivation matters a great deal. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, similar to the other question. I, I like it. I haven't had to think about this one like that. Um, when you think about the unfolding of doctrine and the development of doctrine, I think that plays into this because it wasn't like, you know, Jesus did his ministry and the apostles were established or the scriptures were written. There wasn't a point where everyone went like magically Doctrine of Trinity, <laughs> like, right? Or, or uh, how, let's talk about Jesus. Uh, so um, he's fully God and fully man, with one person and two natures. And how do those natures interact? And well, here we go. So it is part of progressive development of doctrine. Now, as soon as I say progressive development of doctrine, that makes some people really excited. Like, oh yeah, it's always changing. Like, what might happen now? What new doctrine should we believe? Or it makes people nervous, like, wait a second, it's not all obviously clear in Scripture. You know, we would all say, all of our traditions say things like, Scripture is clear on everything regarding salvation, what's necessary for salvation. The perspicuity is the word of Scripture. Perspicuity is to both the heartbeat of salvation, the main teaching of Scripture, but it doesn't mean that everything's equally clear. And that requires that we would interpret one passage with clearer passages. So I, I do think the motivation behind that it, with regard to heresies um, and how we assess them, I think looking at that is going, okay, how do we come, how do you do theological method? I mean, that's at the heartbeat of your question is a theological method. Mm -hmm. And the way we do theological method is, okay, it's an authority dialogue. It's not just we we the, the more progressive theological, uh, like a, a a well like um, a kind of more yeah a more progressive theological method would be um, like hey I'm not scripture is a classic text and I don't really have people in mind when I'm describing this but like scripture is a classic text and uh, and. I have some ideas and I can use scripture to kind of proof text my ideas. Right. That's eisegesis, right? Mm -hmm. I, in one sense, they it, it looks like they're kind of standing over scripture. And then the other is 
the version of like, well, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it as if it's all equally clear. And right. we're just humbly sitting under the teaching of scripture. Right. The other problem is just to act like they're in a dialogue, like a mutual dialogue, like, oh, well, I'm dialoguing with scripture. Well, why am I dialoguing with scripture? I'm not in a peer of scripture. And so the image I have uh, found helpful is an authority dialogue. Okay. Scripture, scripture is the authority and it is in dialogue with me, but a dialogue, not of an equal, but of a, of, of a, a prior authority and an authority to me. And so scripture, um, you know, scripture, I bring my questions and my convictions to scripture. I think this is scripture. This is what I think you say. And scripture comes back and it corrects me or it confirms what I believe. And so that's an ongoing thing. Um, and so I go, scripture, it looks like you're saying that Jesus is God. Yes. There's here, here are 10 verses right here that say it clearly or by implication or indirectly that Jesus is God. But it also says that Jesus is fully man. Yes, it does say that. And so it's, it's the ongoing process of the motivation of trying to be submissive to the authority of revealed will of God and the revelation from God in Jesus Christ and scripture that that authority dialogue takes place. And I think that is an ongoing thing. And then that happens all the time, all the way that we're, we're doing. I, that's how that's what keeps us from getting out of whack and out of balance of only emphasizing the, you know, the grace of God versus the law or the law of God versus the grace or or various things that we end up prioritizing and emphasizing. So I think that that motivation, the two extremes of the motivation are in one sense, they're, they're important to have, um, you know, uh, what, what do I think about scripture and what does scripture say that I should think about it? Putting yeah. those together right. and not having to pick one side, but, but putting those in an authority dialogue seems to be mm -hmm. uh, a, a healthy, but also godly and true way forward. Yeah. I, th I think it's really important to, um, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It, it's it's uh it's very important to emphasize that and i think that takes us back to to your point about humility at the outset where i think unfortunately a lot of times when people are um wrongfully in dialogue with scripture the tendency is for them to say i have these prior convictions and these prior convictions are going to supersede whatever scripture says so they come in already with this presupposition that they're they're going to win the debate they're going to win the dialogue. Yeah. But what you're saying is in this authority dialogue of scripture, there are really only two conclusions that can be drawn. You can be shown that your presupposition is correct or that it's not correct. Um, and that's, that doesn't offer the third option of you get to correct scripture. Um, because your um, your person is not on the level of the inspired or as Paul says in first Timothy or is it second Timothy, God breathed um, mm -hmm. word. So um, coming at it from a place of humility, I think is um, terribly important. Yeah, well, there's there's nothing worse when having a great theology and a couple of scriptures ruin it for you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. And that, isn't that the truth, though? I mean, we can come up with a position. Most of the positions, almost everything we could say that is from essential all the way down, someone could point to some of the, something else in scripture and be like, what about that? And so being honest about that, what, it, what something that um, 
I find interesting is that when people go, hey, I, I could be wrong on this. And then they kind of say, that's because that can be done out of humility or it could be done out of kind of trying to zap the anticipated opposition. Right. What the intent is, I don't know. But like, let's just be really clear. I could be wrong about everything. Yeah. I think. And I don't. And at the same time, I'm also happy to say, I don't think I am. Right. But I, I'm 48 right now, and I've changed my mind on major theological things that have implications for people's lives mm -hmm. since I started actively studying theology as a 16-year-old. Mm -hmm. And I've changed my mind on ecclesiology, on baptism, on end times, on uh, the gospel, right. <laughs> on, on how to read and apply scripture, like major things right. uh, I have changed my mind on. So when you have that memory of changing your mind, I remember being convinced of my prior position mm -hmm. to the point I told one of my friends, this is how bad it was. Okay. I told, he was like two or three years older than me. I think he was like 21. I'm 18. And this tells you what kind of kid I was. And I, I also sinned and I didn't sit around studying theology. I, I was also a jerk and, and sinful and other things, <laughs> but we were talking theology and he was a good Baptist, he led people to Christ and discipled mm -hmm. them. And I believe that if you did not speak in tongues, you did not have the Holy Spirit because tongues was evidence. Watch my logic. Tongues was evidence that you were baptized by the by the Holy Spirit. And you can only say Jesus is Lord if by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, unless you speak in tongues, you can't get a Christian. I told this guy, I was like, hey man, you're not even a Christian. And right. he looked at me, that was nuts. And he just, he was like, whatever, Justin. He's like, come back when you actually go read the Bible again and let me know. And I came, I came back pretty quickly because I was, I was, but I was convinced of a certain theologic theology that had implications. Um, I also remember, here's another one that's really way deeper than that's more goofy and more safe for me to tell. <laughs> I used to believe not just that I could lose my salvation. I believe that every time I sinned, mm -hmm. I lost my salvation. Right. Yeah. And that made me neurotic. Yep. It, that was poison. I still, oh, I was 30 years ago. I still remember thinking and saying to teenagers, you know, every time you sin, you lose your salvation. Thanks be to God that a lot of those kids didn't listen to me <laughs> uh, and that someone told me that that was, that was not true. Yeah. But I remember believing that in my soul. Yeah. I believe that I thought God, like I, I was, I remember saying to kids, I'll be like, dude, what, what were you doing? If you would have died, you would have gone to hell. Yeah. That's not yeah. a livable theology and it's not true. More importantly, that's not true anywhere in the Bible <laughs> right? or the tradition. So, Right. That's why this stuff matters. Well, I'll get to my next question here in a second, but but uh, I should say, um, Justin. So when I was growing up in Eastern North Carolina, uh, I had um, very similar experiences um, as an Episcopalian. Um, I was told by the Baptists, I was told by the Roman Catholics, eh, it's not looking so good for you eternally. But the worst uh, were. Um, were, were some of the Pentecostal friends that I had who I love them dearly. Um, but they would say very clearly, 
if you don't speak in tongues, you are not a Christian. Um, and so that's one thing that, that stuck with me. And even as an Episcopalian, even hearing the grace of God preached from the pulpit, the law had to, to, to quote Luther, the law had gotten into my conscience. And so for me, and this is still to this day, I am fully convinced of the grace of God, but still to this day, there are times where I'm like, how the hell could God save me? Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, that's when Scripture offers uh, a swift and yet somewhat gentle kick to the rear, and say, <laughs> "Do you honestly think that you are so bad that God can't save you?" Yep. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's for people who hear that. I, I hope that there are people who have that kind of mentality who listen to this podcast because the grace of God is true and, and it conquers sin mercifully, but yeah, let's, I'm let's, with say, you. let's say another thing about that. Uh, I mean this with all pastoral care when people say, Hey, I just can't forgive myself. Let me, so, and many people have said that as a sentiment people say, Oh yeah. It's gently, who do you think you are? If the God of the universe has appeased his holiness because he wants to give you um, loving kindness and mercy and only mercy because you have faith in Christ and you're marked as Christ's own forever. If he can forgive you and he was the offended party, you can forgive yourself. You're you, you like, no, no one will snatch you out of my hand. Mm-hmm. He's referring to Satan, but he's also referring by implication. That also means lesser powers like yourself. Right. <laughs> and there's great comfort that uh he he he's holding on to you even when you're not holding on and i think that's that's what i be, be, that's what i love because i know that's what's emphasized in what you guys are doing is that good news that's why right. it's easy to jump on here and i i know it's safe to say these kinds of things because this is part of the dialect of what you all do right. so yeah, let's i hope i hope there's people who are listening right now and thinking oh the holy spirit's going to use that one for uh, to remind them of uh mm-hmm. gospel memory right there by god's grace well that 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 connects to the next question that i have which is um we've tar- we've we've hinted at this um and uh, I, i'm not asking you to implicate any particular person but i would be curious to hear you know all throughout the book you you allude to the fact that there are modern equivalents to the heresies that you mention in the book I have my own opinion about this, but I'm not the guest on the episode, so you're in the hot seat. What do you think is the most prominent of those heresies that you mentioned today, or, because it wasn't all-encompassing, others that are not present in the book? Uh, This one is very, so my opinion is that the most prevalent heresy is Pelagianism. Now, that this is this is just I mean you know, I could have picked Arianism you know about Jesus I could have picked Sabellianism there's tons I could have picked sure I think it's Pelagianism Pelagianism the shorthand is you have everything you need um, there is no such thing as original sin there's the sin of Adam and Eve was a sin of example and you simply don't have the right information and you had bad examples, and you followed the examples, not that their sin has any implication for you with regard to some type of guilt or corruption. 
And so you have you really have to kind of do away with Romans 5:12, which is about that in Adam we all sinned and his sin was given to us and we're uh, all of that whole stuff, but right. also cuts us out of the proto-euangelion of Genesis 3:15 that the seed of woman. But the the shorthand I use for uh, Pelagianism is God has already given us the tools. And so because Adam was a bad example and we followed his example and we're harming ourselves by following a bad example, what we need is a good example. And Jesus is a good example. So be like Jesus. Of course. So let's listen. Everyone right now, I, they're, they're getting ready to stick their fingers in their ears. Of course, be like Jesus. If you can, like, I mean, go for it. <laughs> right. And after new heart, new mind, like, yeah, we're, con- yeah. we're being, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. What right. that means is we're being conformed. God's doing something to yeah. us more conformed, but, right. but, um, but it means uh, we're not currently conformed. We're not currently there. And yeah. so, yeah. And so the good news, according to Pelagianism is why would Jesus say be holy if it wasn't actually possible? Right. Why, why was he telling you to do stuff that you actually can't do? And that kind of is the, is Pelagianism is the practical outworking of Marcionism that we were just talking about. Right. And let me, let me tell you a story about this um, that, that I think is uh, um, I, I need to write down some letters real quick. Um, <laughs> and I may have, uh, may have taught this in a class where some, one of you may have heard this before. But I was in a I was in a line at a at a fast food restaurant, and I have talked to my daughters about the what would Jesus do bracelets. Um, a lot of people wear them, and they said, "Why do people wear those?" And I explained the good reason behind them of like, I mean, he, he's God, and he's also revealing and the character of God, but also he's an example. Right. Um, he's not first an example; he's first a sacrifice and a victor. Right. Um, and so we're, I'm not trying to be hypercritical and throw rocks at people who want to talk about Jesus, but I don't think, uh, the, what would Jesus do movement captures the heartbeat of the gospel. I guess. So there was a, a a woman who was taking our order and she had a bracelet on and it had H Y L A H W L Y T T E. (laughs) And it, and it is clearly in the same vibe of the what would Jesus right. do me? And I looked at it, I was like, hey girls, what do you think that means? And a little bit snarky, but like not to her, but like with the window up, I was like, what do you think this bracelet means? And I, we and then I rolled down the window, gave her the order, and then I said, Hey, by the way, what what what's your bracelet? I'm really curious. And she said, Oh, you know what would Jesus? Oh, I'm crying already. <laughs> I said, you know what that that bracelet, what would Jesus do? And I said, Yeah. And she said, well, this is the answer. He would love you to the end. Oh, like I'm in a, I'm in a fast food line crying immediately. I just looked at her and I was like, thanks be to God. He does. Yeah. Amen. And she's like, amen. Are you a Christian? I'm like, yes, I am. Like, <laughs> I was embarrassed that, uh, that I'm the one sitting there crying and and not didn't even know about this. And she's the, the word of God's promise to me. I get to pick up my food with tears in my eyes. And the guy who was taking the, giving us the food, he goes, did you ask about the bracelet? I was like, I did. That's awesome. (laughs) That's the opposite of Pelagianism. Pelagianism is not saying he would love you to the end. It would be, he gave you an example Go and do it. You now, you now have the knowledge and the example you need. What are we waiting for? Right. Get to it. Yeah. Get to the finish line. 
Do what you do, what the example has taught you to do, and God will be pleased with you. And I think we hear that's that's the the advice that that has scorekeeping, and that's the advice of how the world works. Yeah. And when the church takes that and slaps some Bible words on it and puts some music to it too, uh, that's when it that's when it is heartbreaking because people right. live under the Pelagian burden that is uh, death. Yeah. Well, and it's also, I mean, the idea of an, I think when I hear that, when I hear that theology laid out, uh, you know, I think about like the after school specials or, you know, the NBA player who's made it big and now he's an example for kids, right? right. Like, and, and no one watching that stuff thinks I've got to be precisely like him. It's always this thing of like, oh, I'm going to like emulate one aspect or the other. And so it becomes this super low rent, yeah. like not even holiness, right? Where it's like, well, I mean, I gave that guy five bucks who was on the corner. So obviously I'm like, I followed the example of Jesus, you know? It's like, well, now he laid down his life, <laughs> okay? Right. You're not, you're not going to hit that. Right. Uh, I don't even have a question. I'm just like, I hate that. I hate that. Uh, well, that's the problem. Think about this. Um, moralism moralism really lowers the standard so it's an achievable goal like right. that's what moralists do yeah. moralists don't actually give a standard that they don't live under it, mm -hmm. and so that's what like when when christian smith came up with the moralistic therapeutic deism that kind of capture the mm -hmm. spirit of the age like 15 years ago um he lowered the law to be like be nice. Like, I mean, what we mean by moralism is literally it. You just said it like you, you make it, you take one dimension. You, first, we, we, we limit the law. We pick like a piece of it and then we lower it. We yeah. don't look at it in all of its fullness. I mean, this is why I tell people all the time as an Episcopal priest, I'm like, we're about to say some crazy things about our sin. Uh, we just did the prayer of, uh, um, the, the call it for purity. Um, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. Right. And then we go for it. And then we say, um, you know, holy and gracious Father, we're, we're confessing our sins because we've sinned against you mm -hmm. and our neighbor by sins of omission and commission in thought, word, and deed. Like that is comprehensive. Right. And if that's what we're doing, Pelagius. He ain't got nothing to say. Right. Um, that's where you need that's where you need a savior. Yeah. Yeah. This is um this so I, I know we're drawing we're drawing close to the end of our time. Uh, I'll make a comment about this because um so I, I teach um the Sunday school for the middle and high school kids at the church where I work. And uh I've been trying to I've been trying to work with them because their their parents are hearing all this wonderful, important stuff in church on Sunday, and they're teaching it to them. But the world is teaching them that um, that everything is about merit. Um, mm -hmm. And so, what is um, what was important for for me to say to them was, here's how you can tell if something is good news. Think about it like this: if your parents come to you. And say, good news, I want you to clean your room. Is that good news? Of course it's not good news. That's it, it, the the imperative is uh, is not good news. Um, it's the declarative 
God has uh, has taken on himself and the person of Jesus Christ, the sins of the world for you. The for you is so incredibly important. Then that's good news. Um, I would also like to say that um, I love your good friend, Dr. Michael Horton, who is um, and when we did our five favorite theologians uh, episode or episodes, um, he was one of mine. Um, because he he truly is, and he has convinced me as well that Pelagianism and its subset, semi-Pelagianism, are uh, the greatest uh, and most expansive heresy in the church today, um, and that includes even um, even important sayings in the history of theology, like um, William of Ockham's "Facere quod est," right? Do all that is within you. Um, if I'm doing all that is within me, then then this is a hybrid thing, and I'm never going to do all that is within me, so I'm never going to contribute enough, and so I'm always going to have existential and, and soteriological angst, mm-hmm. and then maybe in the end everything works out, but there's no real guarantee, but we get the assurance of the gospel in Jesus Christ that he has paid the price for sin once and for all. That's what hapox means, man, in Greek, uh, you know. But anyways, I, I could preach on that for quite a while. Stephen, do you have any uh, any any last thoughts, last questions before we finish up with the the good Reverend Dr. Cannon? Cannon, Dr. Man, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. I, I just want to say I really appreciated this conversation. Uh, my goodness, like I've got a lot out of this already. And uh, just talking about the love of God and uh, what you said about, you know, he's got us. He's holding us, man. And that's something that we can carry out. It's easy to forget, but. Yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate yep. it. Well, um, if you're, you have a few more minutes before you close out. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. The heartbeat of this is what you guys talked about, talking about the love of God, is um, we, various cultures, you know, we, we've heard about different types of cultures. There's the fear, fear, power culture. There's the honor, shame culture, a guilt, innocence culture. It we're all the human experience is that we feel guilt we feel shame and we feel uh fear Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and uh and thanks be to god that he's addressed all of those that the Mm -hmm. antidote to our guilt is forgiveness the antidote to our shame is the honor of being accepted mm-hmm. the antidote to our fear is the power of god on our behalf to conquer our enemy and so the gospel actually addresses all of those experiences oh. and the reason and what, what, what i thought things interesting about our conversation is every time we talk about a heresy we went straight back to the good news yeah <laughs> all of the heresies in some way tinker with the good news at a foundational level. That's why they're heresies. Right. It's either the it's either the disposition, character, and nature of God. So you're a heresy if you do that. It's either turning the God man, our Lord and Savior, into only a man or only divine, but not the God man. Right. And that's necessary for uh, personal work of Jesus, to, or the work of Christ to actually be effective in atonement and redemption, or we're, we're, we're saying something about the Holy Spirit who applies redemption, who is God. We're saying something about ourselves with regard to salvation. 
Uh, and so all of them have implications for uh, it's almost like you're playing is it jenga is that the one where you have the stack okay. of things yeah and each one of these heresies is messing with one of those lower level ones that mm -hmm. if you pull out a cornerstone the whole thing topples over mm -hmm. um this isn't about our ego on our what we think we're right on theology we do think it's right and true but we also think um that on top of it being true things about God at the very heart of that edifice of all the theological things we think are true and right and good and beautiful is the fact of it's the good news is at stake and right. our being as second Corinthians five in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. Um, that reconciliation with God is at stake. And most people either walk around in denial that they have a problem and they become Pelagians just because they try to, you know, it helps with their denial. Or most people walk around because of our conscience with some type of guilt or shame or fear that we're living under and the cruelty. That's why I go back to the cruelty of heresy. Right. I love that title. And that's what I was shooting for. Uh, not as good as B good Bishop because I mean, he's just so masterful, but there's a cruelty to it because um, we know the problem people are having and we're not helping point them to a solution. We're putting bricks in their backpack. If we give them these heresies, the heresies are cruel. They're cruel about God, cruel about Christ and cruel to people who Christ came to save. Absolutely. Wow. And I think, um, one more thing. I think that ties into how we should treat people as opposed to the, um, as opposed to the heresy hunter mindset of, treating uh, people that hold heretical views as enemies, we should treat them as, as brothers and sisters and seek to alleviate those, pull those bricks out of their backpack, as you said, and alleviate the suffering that goes along with that. Yeah. Cause, cause one of, one of Paul's now, now we're back to it, but one of Paul's, um, <laughs> I, I don't mind. Oh, one of yeah. Paul's favorite phrases is in Christ. He uses right. it like over 200 times right. and he uses it in different ways. Um, you know, um location um a mode and like you know i'm preaching to you in christ i mean it's just it's more of like a uh, but then the idea of being in christ part of the, the body of christ we're in christ so if you have faith in christ have been baptized into his body marked as christ's own forever if someone has faith in christ they're a brother and sister and the rest is discipleship like mm -hmm. if they're if they have if they possess true faith in christ if they profess and possess true faith in Christ, we're talking to a brother and sister. You talk to a brother and sister differently than you talk to a supposed enemy. Right. And if someone says, I'm in Christ, then, then as much as we think they're wrong, I mean, because there's people who would think that we're wrong on stuff, and I'm grateful for how patient and kind they are with me. But then it's a discipleship question. You're talking to a fellow disciple and saying, I think you're doing it wrong versus I think you're damned. Right. Those are very, very different. And that's what that's the call to humility is the call to humility is not being squishy on theology by any stretch. It's actually harder to do that. But the in Christ, in Christ, everything else is discipleship. That was this is helpful for me, which is um, which is what you're saying. I'm, I'm actually just telling you my words that I'm using for what you're saying. I'm not yeah. changing anything you're saying. Um, I found, found that helpful. Yeah. And to, to draw this all to a, a, a close, I'll try and tie the bow as well as I can. We started off by talking about why we assess heresies in a sympathetic light to give their best possible argument 
because in the end, presenting the gospel shows that when you're presenting it against the best possible argument from these heresies, that it utterly eviscerates everything that they're saying mm. with the truth of the good news. Mm. That's it. So, Justin. Uh, That's good stuff right there. Amen. I just like, had an intention on the way we were going. I, that makes complete sense about our conversation. That's awesome. I, well, uh, I mean, to God be the glory. And uh, that was just the way it worked out. Um, so I just pulled the right thread in that regard. Justin, what would you like to uh, what would you like to plug? What what work are you doing? What what would you like to people to know about that you've got coming up? Uh, that's this important. Anything that's going on? Well, there, there's there's two things. One is I did a devotional. It's called God with us. 365 days on the person and work of Jesus. And I didn't write a word of it. What I did was I went through the Christian tradition and looked at just nuggets. It's literally one page per day. And it's not even dated. It just has day one, day two, because let's be honest, no one does 365 and nails it. Um, You can start whenever you want and just put a bookmark in it, but it looks at person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's like quotes from Aquinas and Calvin and Augustine and Warfield and Spurgeon and um, Anselm and Tertullian and Irenae. I mean, it's literally eclectic. Everyone just to show the anywhere that the, and it's all devotionally appropriated. So it, it, it is, I didn't just pick, and some of them are theologically rich. That's what I wanted people to see was this, the, the theologians that we think are dry, boring theologians were actually ministers, bishops, pastors, deacons. They were they were people who served other people. And this stuff was written. I mean, Anselm's stuff was was part of it's a prayer. Like the, t- the high level philosophy is a prayer. Yeah. Um, that's one. And the other one that I'm really excited about is um, we talked about my wife earlier. We've written some books on abuse uh, for survivors of abuse. And we started doing some children's books. Um, and we have our new, our third children's book is coming out, um, uh, this fall and it's called God made babies, helping parents answer the baby question. Um, and we, that's our third. The first one was God made all of me helping children protect their bodies, which is sexual abuse prevention and helping children think through, um, and parents have that conversation. Our second book was God made me in his image, helping children appreciate their bodies, body image, especially in our hyper-sexualized body image culture. Uh, Kids take the brunt of that. But then we thought, well, let's just round this out with a whole bunch of difficult conversations, sexual abuse prevention, body image, and where do babies come from? But I'm really, it's all based on a doctrine of creation. Um, Like if, if the doctrine of creation, ex nihilo, as described in Genesis, that God creates and thinks is good and sin invades, but it's originally good. What does that mean for your body? It should be protected. You're the image of God and there's dignity and God likes creating. He likes mm-hmm. creating so much. He made creatures that can create. And so that it's yeah. all doctrine of creation applied to children for theological and practical purposes. So God made babies is uh, what I'm most excited about right now, because just awesome. the idea of a bunch of kids and parents having this healthy conversation is exciting. It looks like we got a lot of things to gather together for the for the show notes for people to take a look at. Sure. Well, if you've got a brief moment after we finish recording uh, to debrief, um, that would be great. Yeah. Just to finish up for our podcast episode, thank you for joining us for this episode of Doth Protest Too Much. Too much. Uh, Stephen 
Drew, Charlie, and I thank you very much, Justin, for a wonderful episode, grace-filled episode, and thanks be to God that we were able to talk about such an important topic without stepping on too many specific toes. Amen. Almost like we took our own advice about humility. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you for joining us. Lord bless you, and we look forward to hearing from you again very soon. Thanks for the invitation. Yes. All right. Bye-bye.